Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be uh, hearing this. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries. And this is today, no, this is actually yesterday's episode of Bible Bites. I will be back on in just a little bit with today's. The reading that I did for yesterday, I just didn't get to tape it, but the reading was Hebrews chapters 7 through 10. And so we're going to look at those chapters today in episode 353, which was um, actually yesterday's date. Now, in Hebrews chapter 7, we remember we're reading in the book of Hebrews, and it is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It shows us how everything that the old portrayed and all of the puzzle pieces that were found there are fulfilled and make the beautiful picture of Jesus in the new, who is the better. He is the more excellent one. So let's continue with that. Here we learn in chapter 7 that Jesus is the better or best high priest. Now, to understand this, you need to understand a little bit about the priesthood. And this, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on. It is another whole study, and I will put that up uh, as soon as I'm able to. But in chapter 7, we read about the priesthood of Melchizedek, and then we read about the priesthood of the Levitical system, the, the sons of Aaron. And then we read about Jesus' priesthood. Those are the three primary priesthoods of the New Test of the of the Bible, excuse me, the Old and the New Testaments. The Melchizedek priesthood is given, there's a lot of information given here about Melchizedek in chapter seven, and we will, you know, maybe briefly talk about that. His was found in first in Genesis chapter 14. And so you can look that up and you can understand that this is the one that's spoken of here. He was a king priest. He was both a king and a priest. And we'll talk about in a moment who he may have been. Then there was the Aaronic priesthood. That was the, the Levitical priesthood, the sons of Aaron who were the priests according to the Torah. And they were only priests. There was no mixing of kings and priests um, or even the prophets in that day. They were all three separate offices. Christ, however, is now considered and called in the Bible the priest eternally after the order of Melchizedek. That was prophesied to us by David in Psalm 110 verse 4. Now, Jesus Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the king priest. He is not only Messiah king, but he is also the priest. And if you look back in Zechariah, I believe it's in chapter 6, if I'm not mistaken, along about uh, verse 9 through 13 or something in that area, it speaks about how the priest king is going to sit on his throne and um, execute his priesthood and his kingship. So it already prophesies. There's two places where it's prophesied of Jesus that he will be the king, as well as in the type of Melchizedek. Now, there's differences between these priesthoods, and there's some similarities, and we're not going to get into those. That's another whole study. But let's talk first about this Melchizedek. First of all, you have to realize in verse 1 that it's connecting 
to the very last part of verse 6, because we're told in verse 6, speaking of Jesus, that he's become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we, the, the author of Hebrews gives us more information about this Melchizedek. Now, you'll notice throughout this that there's, he's, he's not listed at having a, um, a beginning or an end or any of that. Now, there's differences of opinion about who this person that appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14 was. But I am of the opinion, as many others are, that this was, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And there are several reasons I believe that. One of those is because Abraham paid tithes to him. Tithes is a form of worship. We give our tithe to the Lord out of worship for him. And one, that is one reason that I personally believe that it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, today, we do give our tithes to a local body, to a local church um, or ministry, you know, So, and that person receives the tithe on behalf of the Lord. But I do believe that in the scriptures, especially in the early days with the earliest father um, here listed as Abraham, that this giving of tithe was an act of worship and he would not have worshipped an angel or, or even another human being. And that person, truly from God, would not have ever allowed it. Now, in verse 7, we see that Abraham worshipped the greater and was blessed by the better. Here again, we're back to the better, the greater, etc., God receives our tithe as an act of worship. And notice in verse 8, it spoke about how even the Levites were paying tithe to the Lord at that time because the Bible says they were still in the loins of Abraham in the sense that they would come and issue forth from Abraham's descendants later on. That's what that's talking about. Now, Verse 7, I mean, verse 11, excuse me, establishes the need for the priest and the order that was necessary. The order that was necessary will not be the order of Aaron, but rather the order of Melchizedek. So let's understand that a little bit better. The order just means the fixed succession or arrangement in the Greek. It's speaking of the rank or position or character, quality the assignment of the one that it's based upon. In, he, in Hebrew, it is speaking of the reason or the suit, the style, the cause or the manner. So Aaron's cause was to administer types and shadows and sacrifices to show that we needed saving and that no works were going to be able to bring us to salvation. Melchizedek's cause, however, was to come from the blessed God offering covenant through the offering of the bread and the wine and the blessings that he gave to Abraham in that time with no dependence whatsoever on Abraham's work. 
works. So I believe there's a huge distinction in why it says that Jesus is priest forever after the order or the cause, the reason of Melchizedek in that same kind of spirit and vein as the, the, the way that Melchizedek came to Abraham. So there, like I said, there's a whole teaching that I've done on the priesthoods of the scriptures and what those things, what those mean in more detail. Now, in verse 12 here, I want to read this to you because obviously up until the time of Jesus Christ, there was one primary priesthood in operation, and that was the Levitical priesthood, the sons of Aaron and that priesthood. Now, by the time of Jesus Christ, under Roman rule, the Romans had corrupted that priesthood, and so they had neglected and thrown out God's assigned priests, who were the sons of Aaron, and they had appointed their own priest. When you read about Caiaphas, for instance, and Annas and all of those, those were appointments by Rome. They were not true descendants of Levi. Zacharias was, we read about Zacharias in chapter 1, and he was a priest serving in the temple in that duty when the angel Gabriel came to him, and, and then we have the birth of John. Now, the Bible is very clear to tell us that both Zacharias and Elizabeth, in that, in that sense, were sons and daughters of Levi. So John is a legitimate descendant of Aaron, therefore a representative of the Aaronic priesthood. He began his ministry about six months before Jesus did, which was at about 30 years old, just like Jesus. Then we have an event happen where Jesus comes directly to John. Now I want to read you verse 12, and then I want to explain about that event. Verse 12, the author of Hebrews writes this and says this, For the priesthood being changed. Of necessity, there is also a change of the law. The author is writing here and saying the priesthood has been changed. He's writing it in the past tense because there was an event when this exchange happened. And that word change means to transpose one thing in place of another or to exchange it. There was a legitimate true priesthood exchange between a son and a descendant, a representative of the Levitical priesthood, and it changed hands. The priesthood changed then from the Levitical priesthood to the priesthood of Jesus, who is priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and it happened at Jesus' baptism. The baptism of Jesus occurred because John was the last of the Levitical line of the priesthood or representing the priesthood in that day. Now, are there still Levitical priests even alive today? Of course, there are sons of Levi that are still alive today, and they are preparing to offer sacrifices in the upcoming uh, temple that's going to be established. That's not what we're talking about. 
What we're talking about is the actual transfer of God's viewpoint of the priesthood. When one stopped in the sense of it being fulfilled in Jesus, and now Jesus' priesthood officially begins. And I believe that did happen at his baptism. There are several things that the baptism of Jesus accomplished. This is one of them. It was a transfer of priesthood from in, in terms of the functionality and in terms of the um, living necessity of it from the priesthood of Levi at that time to the priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. And like I said, there's another different teaching of that. Now, the author of Hebrews goes on and tells us in the next several verses, verses 13 through 17, about the establishment of Jesus' priesthood. But he also deals with this fact that particularly for his Jewish audience, they need to understand because According to the Old Testament, the priesthood was for the tribe of Levi, the sons of Aaron, who was a son of Levi, and it was only for them. So he goes in and he says, Moses never wrote anything about another tribe coming up and another priesthood established. And so then he has to establish the legitimacy of Jesus Christ's priesthood because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So he does that here. Now, there was one person from the tribe of Judah in the Old Testament that formed the closest representation of Jesus who was to come, and that was David. King David of the tribe of Judah did have some occurrences that functioned almost like a priest. He was king and he was a prophet. We know that to be true because of many of his writings in the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 22, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, etc., Psalm 69, etc. Many of those are prophetic. So David functioned as king, of course, as prophet, and there were several times, several occurrences that that he almost appeared to function as a priest, particularly in regard to the tabernacle of David. And I have another study on the tabernacle of David and what that's all about. So he was the closest one that represented the three offices combined into one person. He didn't fully represent that, and he wasn't fully known that way. But he did come close to representing that. Jesus comes, and he is king, and he is prophet. How many times did Jesus prophesy? What about Matthew 24 and 25, for instance? Jesus was a prophet. He prophesied about his own death. He prophesied about his own resurrection. He prophesied it would be on the third day. Jesus was a prophet as well as a king. He is our king. He also is our priest. So there's been a change in the priesthood, and Hebrews is telling us about that. Now, he goes on in verse 18 and through 22 of chapter 7, talking about the better hope and the better covenants that we have. And it's because of no one else but Jesus. He talks about how Jesus now continues. He talks about how the priest would, they, they died off 
you know, they'd live for, you know, 50, 60, 80 years, whatever, but they would die off. And Jesus, however, lives forever. And so his is an eternal priesthood, making it, of course, a better priesthood as well. Now I want to read to you verse 25. Therefore, he, because he has a continual eternal priesthood, because he lives forever, says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus now is involved in a full-time ministry as priest. One of the priest's duty was to intercede on behalf of the people. That's what a lot of the sacrificial system was all about. He was doing that on the people's behalf. He was pleading with God for the people. He would go in every day and there was an incense burning prayer service. He would pray for the people. Jesus' full-time ministry now, according to the author of Hebrews, is that he is making intercession for the people, and he is still able to this day to save to the uttermost completely. Praise be to God. Every day Jesus is praying for us. Praise be to God. Notice that it ends talking about the better sacrifice, that he was such a high priest, separate from sinners, become now higher than the heavens, he doesn't need every day to go in and offer sacrifices. He offered one better sacrifice, one time for all. Praise be to God. In chapter 8, he, he kind of summarizes it. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So he's comparing the, the tabernacle on earth with the tabernacle in heaven, and it's the better one. And he talks about how Jesus made the sacrifice and now is seated at the right hand of God, seated because the work's been done. It's complete and now ready. Hallelujah. Jesus also needed something to offer as a priest. We read about that in verse 3 through 5. Moses were the type, Moses and the Levitical priesthood were the types and shadows of the heavenly tabernacle. But Jesus, he offered his own self, his own blood as the sacrifice. Verse 6 tells us we have a better covenant and better promises. Hallelujah. He goes on into verse 7 and so forth, and he speaks about this better covenant, that this is necessary. It was necessary, this new covenant. It was prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. I believe it's verse 31 through 34 or 35. Notice this in this new covenant that the Lord, when he makes this covenant with each one of us, when we enter that covenant relationship with him, he writes his law inside of us. In other words, he births a desire inside of us and writes his law right on our hearts so that now it's not some external club that's hitting us over the head because, you know, we messed up or whatever, or that we're in fear of it hitting us over the head. 
but it's something coming from inside of us, out of our heart. We want to obey him. We want to please him. We want to know him. And so out of that desire, there is a birthing of our obedience to his word, to the things that please him. And then he says, and he becomes our God and we his people. When you see that, that I will be your God and you will be my people in scripture, it's talking about covenant relationship. It's talking about being a family, being in relationship one with another. This is a personal relationship. I love how he speaks here about how it's personal, that all will know him from the least to the greatest Everyone and anyone, no one excluded, the least to the greatest. Praise God. Chapter 9, the first several verses, he speaks about the first covenant and the tabernacle of Moses. He goes into quite a bit of detail about that. He speaks about how in that tabernacle, verse 7, he says, but into the second part, meaning the holiest of holies, the high priest went alone once a year and not without blood. But notice on as he goes on down, he speaks about verse 11, how Jesus came. Verse 10, he says, Messiah's coming. Uh, he says in verse 10, let me read verse 10 to you. He says, these, these people... The Old Testament was concerned only with food and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Their purpose was, was legitimate. It was a good purpose, but it was a purpose until Messiah comes and straightens it all out thoroughly because he restores it back to the way it should be. So we have now entered Jesus, here he comes, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. And he didn't come with blood of animals. He came with his own blood and he entered the holiest of holies. And he only had to do it one time forever, for all he doesn't have to come back and, and die every year. He didn't have to come back anymore. That one sacrifice was plenty enough. It was sufficient to cover all of the sins of all of the people of all of the world, of all time in the world, from the least to the greatest. Praise be to God. And so in doing that, he has a better sacrifice and has ushered in the new covenant for us. Praise God. It required, this new covenant required the greater blood sacrifice. And it was once for all. It had a greater duration. It had a greater redemptive end result. Because if you'll remember, when the priest would come in once a year, they, they had to come back every year. It only, you know, it only, in a sense, lasted, we can say, in quotes, um, once a year or for a year. But Jesus has bought eternal redemption. He's the greater source of our cleansing. The blood of the animals and the ashes of the heifer is contrasted with his own blood, which is accepted by God, offered by the Holy Spirit, and enables us and sanctifies us 
to serve the living God, not being stuck in dead works, but rather to serve the living God with a clear conscience. Praise God, we have a better inheritance. He goes on in the last few verses, um, and he starts talking about the testament. And a testament or a will, someone's will, requires that the person dies. It's no good until somebody dies. That's the only time that you can claim the inheritance that's listed in the will. So he talks about that. And he talks about how it required, even the first covenant required blood, required death, because it required blood. Some animal had to die. But Jesus has ushered in the New Testament, the New Covenant, and it was effective because of his death. It has become effective for us. He talks about how Jesus appeared after his resurrection into heaven and offers his own blood, fulfilling the day of atonement in its totality. Praise be to God. Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice, the better atonement. Hallelujah. He only had to die once, and he died in our stead. Praise be to God. And so now, we, it says in verse 27, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. In other words, he died in our place to destroy death on our behalf. He's not talking about physical death here. That's the dying once. But the spiritual death is the second death, and you can find that in more detail in Revelation. And none of us have ever been appointed to the second death. It's not God's will. It's God's will that we come into covenant relationship with him and live forever. Chapter 10, he speaks about the, remember the puzzle pieces that I talked about, how the Old Testament had the pieces in it, but the Old Testament didn't have the picture on the box. So they didn't know how to connect them. But hallelujah, let's look at verse 2 through 4. For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciences of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. It was insufficient. They needed the complete picture. They needed the puzzle to be put together and they didn't have that. But that's what this is giving us is how it all connects and how it all comes together. In verse 5 through 14, it it's, uh, quotes, the author quotes several scriptures here, but he talks primarily in this section about how God knew that the animal sacrifices were not sufficient to cover that. And so he came. He came himself. He became that sacrifice, just like Abraham prophesied in Genesis 22. When he was offering Isaac and he said, he told Isaac, he said, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And God did that. It was his will for himself to be the all sufficient sacrifice. It was the only one that could have been the sacrifice. And so Jesus made these declarations. He says, I came, there was a body prepared for me. There was a body of flesh, human flesh prepared for me. And I said, yes, I will go. I came to do his will. And, I, and Isaiah 53, 10 tells us it was the will of the father to bruise his son, not because God was mean or, or masochistic or any of that. It was because it was the only way 
that we could be redeemed. And God loved you and me that much. Praise be to God for his great love. The old, he goes on down, is not necessary anymore because the new completely wipes away sin and has fulfilled and brought to the full the old. He's not saying it's no good. He's saying that the new, the better has now come, and so the old is now obsolete. There's no more of a veil dividing us away from the presence of God. That veil was the body of Jesus. It represented the body of Jesus, and it's called so here that he, in verse 20, it talks about how Jesus, the blood of Jesus, made us a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Hallelujah. And so there's no more division. We are now free to act, to have open access to come to Jesus through the way made for us, through the blood of Jesus Christ. So he goes next into our response. What should our response be? He says, draw near. Come. Come to him. Draw near to him. He talks about how God is faithful. He is a promise keeper. He says, hold fast to that. Consider and stir up each other, other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Stir us up. You know, get us, get us working like a, a brooding hen would do when she's kind of brooding over her chicks to kind of push them out of the nest. You know, wake up and let's get moving to love and good works. He talks about not forgetting to assemble together. And he talks about exhorting each other increasingly so as the day, the day that we're all longing for, the day of Jesus Christ's return comes quickly. Then he deals in this last part of chapter 10 with the issue of willful sin in the body. And he says, wait a minute, it can't be. There's no sacrifice, period, anywhere in the scripture for a willful sin, as long as it's a willful, unrepentant sin. You won't get, you won't get forgiveness for that. Now, when you repent of it, when you recognize it and you submit to God and say, God, forgive me, you humble yourself, you ask him to forgive you, confessing your sin. Yes, there is forgiveness immediately granted then. But this is talking about somebody who knows that they're shaking their fist in God's face and they're going to continue to do it anyway. That person that rebels against the Spirit of God that says the Spirit of God is trying to convict them and tell them you don't need to partic participate in that. You've got to leave that or whatever. That's sin for you. And that person will not repent. That's what he's talking about here. And so in verse... Um, 29, he says this, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the blood, trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? So what he's pointing out here is that we need to recognize that God is a consuming fire. He goes on. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's pointing out that we, we do need a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord to recognize he's holy. 
And when we come and we submit ourselves to him, there's a change by the Spirit of God to make us holy. And it's our obligation to receive that and to cooperate with the Spirit of God and to neglect and refuse all willful sin areas. Do we all mess up and sin? Oh, yes, we do. But the difference here is in the willingness to do it. You know, the, the person who's truly saved, you know, we lose our temper every now and then. We, we may say something we shouldn't say or whatever the sin is. We fall into temptation occasionally. But when the Spirit of God comes to convict our heart, we say, God, forgive me. Yes, I did that. I fell. Please forgive me and, and wash me clean again. And God does that. We'll read that coming up in, in 1 John. So that's a different situation than somebody who hardens and says, nope, I really like this and I'm going to keep doing it. Even if the, the Spirit of God is telling me not to, I'm going to resist that. I don't want to have that anything to do with that anymore. That's the person that's described here and that we are warned about in terms of any punishment. Now I want to read verse 39. He talks about that person, but he says this in verse 39, and this leads us into today's actual uh, study. But we, verse 39, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Amen, and may it be so for every single one of God's children. I hope this has been a blessing to you today. And Lord willing, you join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today in Jesus' name.